Good morning. I have an announcement to make. John Tilstra has had another stroke. Mm -hmm. He is currently at Health South in rehabilitation. And Margaret has asked that we remember John in prayer today and and through the week. And if you have time to stop down and visit, uh, I'm sure we'd probably appreciate a visit as well. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study and join together with the people who love you and love the way you run your universe. Uh, as we join together today, we want to remember um, John and Margaret. John has suffered another stroke, and, and we know how much they love you and long for the day that you return, and we all do. We ask that your angels and spirit would be with John and bring healing and restoration as you know is best, and be with Margaret during this time that she will be comforted. I pray that you will fill our hearts with compassion and love to help and support each other. And, and as we study together today, I pray that you'll draw near to us that we can experience your presence. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number three in the quarterly Revival and Reformation. And the title this week is The Word, the Foundation of Revival. What do you think of the title? In other words, when you think of the Word, what comes to mind? The Bible. The Bible. Somebody said Jesus. Jesus, because he's referred to as the Word was made flesh and so forth. The Word was with God and the Word was God and so forth. If you read your lesson this week and went through it, what... Are they primarily referring to in this week's lesson when they refer to the word? Scripture. Scripture. Yeah, it's primarily about scripture this week. Okay. So when we think about using the Bible as our source of authority, are there any rules, methods, principles, guidelines that we need to bring to bear or should bring to bear to enhance our ability to get what God wants us to get out of it? Let's start, I guess, by just affirming that we all in here believe that the Bible's inspired, God's inspired word. But having said that, having acknowledged the Bible's inspired, God's inspired word, even though it is inspired, can it be used in ways that mislead? Yes. Think through that. Think through that. Did Satan quote scripture in an attempt to mislead Christ? Yes. So with that observation, Satan used scripture on Christ to try to mislead him. What is the lesson from that observation? There's a lesson there. It's a simple lesson. Quoting scripture is not enough. Quoting a Bible verse is not enough. You have to actually understand more than just the quote, right? We all agree with that so far? Okay. And and according to the Christian Encyclopedia of 2001, there are currently 34,000 different, 34,000, Different Christian groups all claiming the Bible support what they teach. Anybody have any concerns about that? Okay. Because the Bible can be, on the innocent end, just simply misunderstood from the innocent of heart, on the malicious end, like Satan was doing, twisted and purposely used to misrepresent, on either end, because of that, Using the Bible in isolation is risky. So what can we do to minimize the likelihood of misunderstanding when we study the Bible? What what methods, tools, principles can we bring to bear? Some general overriding rules. Yes. Looking at the Bible as a whole. I love this. Yes, the whole. Now think about what that means. The whole Bible means all 66 we need to have an understanding that any passage of Scripture harmonizes with the overall understanding of the rest of Scripture. That we don't have to slice it up and say, okay, well, you know what? That, that piece, you know, we're going to cut that out. Do you remember, I think it was Thomas Jefferson who cut out 
the Bible. He cut it up into little sections and said, this doesn't, this doesn't, this doesn't. Martin Luther, he only had 62 of the books, I think. He left four of them out. And I don't remember all. He left Hebrews out. He left Revelation out. He left James out. Galatians. Martin says Galatians. So four books he left out. He put them in the back and they weren't really considered inspired by Martin Luther. So he, he left some things out. The critics, the critics of our, our view don't like this idea of, of including all 66, all harmonized together. They say that, and I've heard this, I've gotten, well, you're, you're, you're just making that say what you want. So what happens to those who hold another view, they do things like they divide the scripture. That's old dispensation. This is new dispensation. That was the Old Testament under dispensation of law. This is the New Testament under the dispensation of grace. And we split the scripture now into two. And, 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 and they don't have equal weight anymore. We divide it. We don't want to divide scripture. We want to use it all. doesn't mean we understand every passage correctly. But our goal is to, is to include them all. So first thing, all 66 is a good principle. How about studying with a heart longing for truth, a heart that comes to the scripture submitted to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, seeking for real understanding. In other words, right heart, mind, attitude when studying scripture is important. And how about reasoning? Should you engage your reasoning powers? Yes. Any, yeah, any Bible verses come to mind? Come, let us reason together. Yes, Isaiah, though your sins are like scarlet. God invites us to do this with him. Absolutely. And then, you know, what we've been, one of, the, one of the things that we've discovered recently has been very helpful in really clarifying is that integrative evidence-based approach. The three threads God has given us. From one, scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Second Timothy 3.16. Science. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what he has made. The natural world and science, Romans 1.20. And experience, Psalms 34.8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience the Lord in your life and see the transformation it makes. So we want to use all three and require that all three threads support the same conclusion. And how about this one? Require Jesus be the lens. His life is the lens through which we understand Scripture. Rather than pigeonholing Jesus into a preconceived symbolic understanding of Old Testament symbols. We've studied the Old Testament, we've worked out all the symbols, we've come up with a construct, we believe this is what it means, and now we plug Jesus into that. Should we do it that way? Or should Jesus... The living word be the lens through which we understand the written word. He was the fulfillment of all that stuff in the Old Testament. He is the true light which clarifies the true meaning of what that was supposed to, to be. Do you see a problem when we go the other direction? This happens a lot. And then if you look at Jesus, the methods he used. Did you know Jesus used the integrative evidence-based approach? He used scripture. He quoted it. He read it in sanctuary. He used scripture. He used science and nature all the time. Look at all the teachings that he used and all the parables, all the examples that he used. And he used healing, the natural law, healing. And how, how do doctors heal? By putting people in harmony with the laws of health. He restored people's bodies back to the way God designed them to operate. He, he used the, the, the laws of nature. And he used experience. He said to Thomas, 
hey, stick your hand right here. Check me out. Check my wounds. Experience this. All three threads Jesus used. Harmonizing them. And then I also recommend read a variety of versions. Original language if you can, but a variety of versions will be sufficient. We've got plenty of them today. But remember when you read, the words of scripture are not inspired. God inspired the penmen. The writers were inspired, and they used their words, and so it's the concepts or ideas contained within that are inspired. That's why it's okay to rearrange the words to, to, to hold on to the idea. Classic example in Revelation, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, his heart, opens the door, I'll come in and stop with him, he with me. In a certain culture in Africa, in that culture, only thieves knocked. When somebody came to your house, they would shout, and you would hear their voice, and, you, and they would announce themselves with a voice. The thieves would knock because if they heard somebody running in the house or coming to the door, they would run away, and if no one came, then they could steal into the house. And so when they parif- put the, the Bible into the language of this group, they said, I stand at the door and shout. If anyone hear my voice, I will come in and stop with him. Now that changed the word. It's not what the word says. But it's the right idea. And that's the way the scriptures work. Some people can't handle that. They want every, well, the words are inspired. No, they're not. It's the idea, the concept. So we want to read various versions, keeping that in mind. The principle of sola scriptura, espoused by Martin Luther, was for the purpose of confronting traditions that had entered the church based on superstition and paganism. That's what his purpose was. And and, and Martin Luther is basically saying, I can't allow tradition to be my determiner. I must find whatever tradition we use must be also supported by Scripture. And if I can't find it in Scripture, then then there's no basis for it. I, I need to leave it behind. And I want you... One of the criticisms we get with the integrative evidence-based approach believe it or not, is those who oppose this perspective say sola scriptura, only scripture. Did you notice when I gave the integrative evidence-based approach a moment ago, I gave three scriptures to support each one of the threads? So if you really believe the scripture, then the scripture actually supports all three threads. Do you notice that? It's interesting how there's a convoluted way of thinking where they say, well, that, that, but even, even so, we, we, we can only use the scripture. We have to exclude those, those other threads. Well, I want to show you the difference between using Scripture to confront tradition and using Scripture, science, and experience together. Let me show you the difference. Tradition. Celibacy for those in the priesthood. This is tradition. Martin Luther found that Scripture did not support this, thus he rejected the tradition. Science. Today, science. Eating a diet that avoids animal products is healthier and if one de- does eat animal products, if they eat a Mediterranean diet, high in vegetables, uh, vegetable products, and limited to meats, mostly fish, and a few kosher meats, if, uh, if they use meats, this is healthier. It's what science says. This is healthier for your body than if you eat just any old thing you want. What do you think Scripture is going to support? That's science. We looked at science first. If we go to Scripture, what will we find in Scripture? Will it refute the science or will it support the science? It supports the science. It shows the same thing. What about experience? If we actually did epidemiologic studies and followed people who eat this kind of, what will experience support? The same thing. All three. Science, experience, scripture, they all harmonize on this. We don't have to worry about this. But when we use scripture alone, when we use scripture alone, then we can innocently misunderstand. For instance, Matthew fifteen eleven, What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth? That's what makes him unclean. 
Have you ever heard this used to say, you can eat whatever you want? Any food. doesn't matter. Scripture alone. Wait, if we harmonize with science and experience, we'll say, okay, there must be some other meaning than just eat anything. And, and of course, it, there was another meaning. This was not talking about foods. This was talking about character. Yes? The Greek word's not unclean. What's the Greek word? Koinos, common. Common. And it's a rabbinical term. It means defiled by contact with association. Yes, exactly, yes. In Acts 11, two words are used, akathartos and koinos, mm-hmm. because it's not just the unclean, it's that which comes into contact with the unclean that defiles it. Yeah, so, so what he's saying, this is not about nutrition. This is about ceremonial uncleanliness or ceremonially un... Yes, that you're not, you're, not, you're not ceremonially righteous anymore. You're now just common and, and worldly. But it wasn't about nutrition, was it? No. Yes. The other text that, that people will use to support that idea is the one that says um, the man of weak faith can eat only vegetables, but the man of strong faith can eat whatever he wants. That's in Romans chapter 14, I think. Yes. And what Paul's talking about in the context. Yeah, if you have great faith, you realize that whatever goes into your mouth doesn't change your character. That if if a if a uh, if a, uh, uh, a offering, whatever the food is, was offered to an idol, if you look at the context about foods offered to idols in the marketplace, offering the food to the idol doesn't change its nutritional content. But if your faith is weak and now you think, if I eat that food, that idol's going to have power on me. And then, and then when I drop the mirror, I got bad luck for seven, seven years and, and I better shake salt over my shoulder or, or else. And if I walk under that thing and a black cat just went in front of me, oh, oh, oh. See, your mind is now being oppressed by superstition. And this is what he's thought, and your faith is very weak. But your faith is great, you're going, that's just, it's nothing. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of gold. It's nothing. It has no, no power over the food. But he wasn't saying that all food is nutritionally healthy. And this is where we bring all three threads together. Another one is in 1 Timothy 4.3, about the, the immature or the, the, the one people we don't want to follow. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. And they'll use this one by itself, Sola Scriptura, by itself, even though if you read it, it really kind of explains itself. Mm-hmm. Foods that God created to be received. Mm-hmm. What did he create to be received, if you actually take it as it reads? Vegetables. Fruits, nuts, grains, vegetables. This is what he created, but people will take it innocently and think, and, and so here's what happens when we use Scripture alone. We can easily, without malice or purposeful intent, to twist, misunderstand, And many Christians have rightly concluded that one is not ceremonially unclean by eating a non-kosher piece of food. But have misconcluded that all food's equally healthy. And so the laws, the ceremonial laws were done away with, but the laws of health were not done away with. And then when we put the pieces together, we see that God incorporated many of these dietary laws into their system because he wanted them to have healthier spirit temples where he could then communicate with healthier brains that people could comprehend on on higher levels. When it comes to our theology about God, it's the same. Texts by themselves are easily misunderstood. But when we require them to harmonize with the law of love, the law of liberty, the testable principles of how God built the universe to run, then there are certain ideas of God that cannot be accepted, even though the scripture on the surface may sound like that. Sabbath lesson, the memory text. 
It says, plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word, Psalms 119.154. What do you think it means? We've read it? So that's what does it mean? So we want more, more of the word. We, we already said we want to take the word as a whole. So bring more of the word in on this question of what does God's word say about reviving us? Reviving us. How does the Bible suggest we're revived? The law of the Lord is perfect revival. I love this. This is Psalm 19.7. We're going to think that one through. Some suggest the idea is put forth that we're revived by a legal transaction between God, between Jesus and the Father. Jesus pays the penalty, then pleads to the Father, the blood he shed, in order to spare us an inflicted torture and death that the Father would otherwise impose upon us if Christ didn't plead his blood for us. Do you understand this is what's common in Christianity? But the scripture says, as you quoted, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Or Proverbs twenty-one twenty-one: he who pursues righteousness and love finds life. Finds life. Life. How does that work? What are this text suggesting about the connection between the law, between love, reviving, and life? How are they connected? Do we understand God the creator, God the designer, God the builder? Did he build his universe to operate on certain protocols, certain parameters, certain design principles? Can you describe them? Is life built to operate on the, on the principle of beneficence, giving, the law of love, in action, the circle of giving? Yes, hand right here. Well, Jesus also said, my words are the spirit and life. So as we dwell on the word of God, and as we receive what Jesus said, then... We receive life. I, I, and how does that work? I, I agree with you completely. His words are the words that he spoke and life was created. God spoke life and he's the source of life. Original, unborrowed, underived. We have no life of our own. It's a shared life that he gives us. He shares his life with us. It's no longer I that live. Christ lives in me. How does, how does that work? That speaking the word. How does it work in the mind of those who are dead in trespass and sin? We are dead in trespass and sin. What does that mean? Dead in trespass and sin. If you believe life is created to operate on certain protocols, the law of love and action, the principle of giving, every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide, plants give back oxygen to you, circle of never-ending giving. If you break it and selfishly hoard your own carbon dioxide, you break the law. You're transgressing it. The wages of doing that is death. So the Lord wants to put you in harmony with his law. He pulls the plastic bag off your head. And you're revived. You're revived. I'm going to write my law where, it said in the New Covenant experience. In the heart and mind. He speaks. We're one to trust. Because the lies about God are displaced. We open the heart and the spirit is poured out. What's the spirit do? He pours what in Romans 5.5? 5? Pours something into our hearts. Pours his love into our hearts. Love is poured in. What's love do to fear in our hearts? Perfect love casts out. What's fear cause us to focus on? Who does fear cause us to focus on? Self. What's love cause us to focus on? Others. It's actually transformational, regenerational. I won't go into the neural circuitry involved, but it actually has brain changes involved when when we go through this experience. 
And of course, the scripture supports what I'm saying. I won't go through all the scriptures again. The science, I give you one example. There's many other examples in nature. And experience. Multiple studies show that those who are volunteers, those who volunteerism live longer, have less health problems, stay independent longer, less dementia, are more successful in society. Students who do this are actually have uh, better grades. They're less likely to get involved in alcohol and drugs. They actually are more successful and more likely to graduate from college if they're volunteering, giving themselves up others than those who don't volunteer. Accounting for all of the variables, such as socioeconomic status, smoking, um, the diet, all these other things were accounted for. And still, volunteerism resulted in living longer and better health. Living in harmony. So we have the three threads. Scripture, science, experience, all pointing the same thing. Thus, <clears throat> in a love relationship with Christ, opening the heart, we begin to give instead of to take. We trust instead of doubt. We pray instead of worry. We experience a change, greater peace, healthier relationships, better physical health, we are revived. I've come that you might have life one day in heaven that's better than one you have now. Is that what he said? I've come that you might have life more abundant, even now. Even now. We're not revived by claiming a legal payment while living outside God's design for life. We're not. This is the classic lie. You understand there's a large religious organization that says you can basically do what you want as long as you come and confess it and have the proper word said, do your penance, and have the pardon placed over you. You can live your life any way. You can be a mafioso, call out your hitmen, just come to confession. Get your legal sins taken care of. Yes. An online listener is uh, asking, wouldn't working at a job that helps people be the same as volunteering in regards to living a better life in all those areas? It depends on motive, doesn't it? I know politicians at the election season will often be seen at soup kitchens filling bowls of soup. (laughs) And I know people who work in helping industries, service industries, that do it because they want to make money. They want to have power. They want to have control over people's lives even. So it does depend on motive, not just the act. act. So, yes. Religious organizations seem to want to create a dependency upon them, upon their protocol, their, you know, their circle of activity. And um, the books that I've read on prayer all lead to the, the fact that God is looking for a voluntary, willful, loving relationship. This is, this is the whole object of prayer. And, living, and bringing us back to live in harmony with his character, his methods, his principles, the way he does business, the way his universe runs. So it's not just prayer while living the wild life. It actually is transformational that changes the choices we make, the actions we take, the way we live. Isn't it true? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, in the lesson, it states that When people discover the truth and the word of the Holy Spirit will move upon them, God will, this is a quote from the lesson, God will honor their commitment by pouring out his Holy Spirit in abundance. And the whole world will be lightened with the glory of the three angels' messages. The Holy Spirit will be poured out beyond measure, and the gospel will be carried to the end of the earth, and Jesus Christ will return. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that what we long for in this class? And I believe the lesson is exactly right on this point. 
when the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the entire world as a witness to all nations, the end will come. What's preventing it? Yes. Could you just elaborate a little bit on the gospel of the kingdom? Yes, what kingdom? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So can anyone, in, in, in you know, 30 seconds or less, demarcate the core difference between God's kingdom and kingdoms of the world? Anybody? God's kingdom is run on love and not outside motivation, their internal motivations. So God's kingdom is run on the principle of love, and earthly kingdoms are run on the principle of coercion. Outside motivation, pressuring people or else. Threat. It's coercive pressure. The lamb represents Christ. T- ravaging beasts that tear asunder represent kingdoms of the earth. Yes? And Christ's kingdom is exactly the opposite of the kingdoms of the earth and that it's based on servant rather than mastery. So in fact, yes, the, the he who was equal with God did not think equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of a servant, came in sacrif- to come and sacrifice himself for us, whereas the kingdoms of the earth lord over rather than Jesus when all power was given to him in John 13, got up, took up a bowl and a towel and washed dirty feet with power. That was what he did with power. He serves with power. He gives. He blesses. The kingdoms of the world lord over, dominate, control, abuse with power. It's yes. also an everlasting kingdom. An everlasting kingdom because, my, my view, because that's the way God built it to run. Harmony with God's principles are the sustaining um, uh, design for the universe. Life exists this way. It can't exist the other way. Um, I was talking to Martin before class. He said that uh, somebody he knows has this idea that, that breaking the law is, is attached to the penalty of death. And so they view this punishment. When you break the law, death has to be imposed. I said, wait a minute. Look at the other side of the law, the, the law of, upon which life is designed to operate. Example, law of respiration. You tie two 200-pound two weights on your leg and jump in the ocean, you're now transgressing the law. And guess what's attached to that? Death. Death will follow. That's what happens. Nobody's imposing it. You can't, and it's uncompromising. It is uncompromising. The law will not be changed to meet you 300 feet underwater. It won't be changed. The law doesn't change. We have to be changed to be put back in harmony with the law. A lot of people don't, a lot of people see this, God made a list of rules. And he will not change his rules. He will kill you. Unless you claim that payment. Three angels' message, and I saw another angel flying in midair, having the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said with a loud voice, Fear God, and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the spring of water. Is this eternal gospel proclaimed by this angel, the same as Jesus said, would go to the world as a witness to all nations? Same message, right? Both, both. Jesus said in the gospel of the kingdom is preached. I'm going to suggest to you this gospel is the eternal good news. It says the eternal. Eternal, meaning eternity past, it was good news. And eternity future, it's good news. It's eternal for all directions of all time, all places. It's always good news. When I ask people, what's the good news? They'll often say, Jesus died so that I could be saved. That's the good news. Was that true in eternity past? True, he would, but it wasn't true he did. Back before Lucifer fell, had Christ died, was it good news that Christ died for human sin when humans didn't even exist? 
This is eternal good news. What's the eternal good news? Is it about our salvation? God is trusted. It centers on God. We war against everything, according to 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. We war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Life eternal, they might know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ is not sent. The eternal good news is, God is not like Satan alleged. Don't believe those lies. Believe in those lies break the circle of love and trust. That's what caused the fall in heaven. That's what caused the fall in Eve. Adam and Eve weren't, weren't induced into drug addiction. They weren't induced into, into pornography. They weren't in, induced into the slave trade. They were induced into distrusting God. Believing lies. It's always been that. Lies about God. And then once you no longer trust God, fear and selfishness take over. And the fear and selfishness lead to all those other sins that we focus on so much. So the good news is about God. Has that message gone to the world? I don't think it has. I think another message, which misrepresents God. God is required by law to inflict punishment, but good news. Jesus paid the penalty, and as long as he's pleading to his Father in our behalf in heaven, holding back the anger and wrath, we can be saved. He's our friend in court, pleading our case before God, the great judge of the universe. Think again of this example. It's a powerful example. You have somebody who's breaking both laws. Laws of health, natural law, imposed law, laws of state, a hair, IV heroin user. Breaking both laws. He's now infected because he's been using dirty needles. He's got bacterial infection of his heart. He's really sick. Does this person breaking both laws want to be taken to the judge, the magistrate, to have his whole history laid out before the judge, have the judge pronounce sentence to judge him, and then pronounce sentence upon him. Does he want that? Does he want to go there if he has a choice? Does he want to go to the doctor, have the doctor have the whole history laid out before him, examine him, see his true condition, and judge him, called a diagnosis, and pronounce a sentence upon him, called a treatment intervention, a therapeutic intervention? Does he want to go there? This is David. Father, search me and see the wicked way in me. Diagnose me correctly. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. When we present God in this arbitrary imposed view, we obstruct God's plan to heal and save people. When we present him as the designer, the builder, the one, whose law is what life is built upon, and that he's longing to restore us, then people, I'm sick. I'm messed up. Lord, search me and find what's broken and fix it. We want to go to him. Second angel followed. Oh, first angel, be amazed with God. Give him glory by, how do we give him glory? By singing glory songs on Sabbath morning? Is that the way? How do we really give him glory? How do, you are a light unto the world. Let your light so shine before men. What does that mean? Live in harmony. Reveal his character in your life. Don't we give him glory by revealing his character in the way we live? We glorify him in our lives. And why is it at this time in history, he's saying, come and, 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 and the gospels go to the world, fear him, awe him, be amazed of him, and give him glory because, there's a reason given, because. The hour of his judgment. Which means? Jesus' judgment. The hour that he sits in judgment of us, or the hour which Paul talked about in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. God, may you be proved right when you are judged. That's a quote from Paul. That the world at the end of time is going to make a decision. The people on earth are going to decide, do you like God this way 
Or do you like God this way? Which God will you serve? As Joshua said, choose ye this day whom you will serve. Make a decision. Make a judgment. The hour has come for people to judge God. And tell me, true or false? As you judge him, trustworthy and open to him, or untrustworthy and close your heart, it determines your destiny. Trustworthy. Our destiny is determined by what we choose in our relation with God. But we've got this imposed law construct. And we've got this idea that he sits up there as a grand magistrate, going over records, making a decision to impose punishment. This is paganism. Let's look at some evidence. Well, second angel, fallen is Babylon the Great, which has made nations drink for maddening wine and for adulteries. Well, the first message presents the truth about God's character of love, his methods of love. The second points out that the system of religion that has dominated the world has fallen into confusion about God and teaches ideas that intoxicate the world into false belief systems about God and his methods, causing their hearts to distrust him, to be adulterous, adultery. I don't trust you. I'm against you. I'm not for you. I'm not united with you. My heart's not with you. And how has that happened? Because the system teaches a version of God that undermines our trust in him. This is adultery. Our hearts are not united. My paraphrase of the three angels' message, and this is a paraphrase, so you can criticize it. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. He had the eternal good news about God's character of love to proclaim to everyone on, living on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, which represents a movement of people who arise to proclaim the truth about God's character of love throughout the world. He said in a clear, resounding voice, Be in awe of God and glorify him by living his methods of love, because the hour has come for everyone to make a judgment about God and worship the Creator who made the heaven, the earth, the springs, and the sea of water. Then I saw a second messenger follow the first, proclaiming throughout the world, Don't trust Babylon the Great, a symbolic description of religions that misrepresent God. It has fallen into lies about God and intoxicate the world with its pagan views of God, maddening them with its adulterous ideas that God coerces and must inflict punishment if not properly appeased. And the third messenger followed and proclaimed in a voice heard throughout the world, If anyone gives worth and honor to the beastly system of coercion by choosing the methods of the beast, and thus marking themselves as loyal in heart by embracing the character of the beast, or by marking themselves as loyal in deed by practicing his methods, they will reap the full fury of unremedied sin when God lets go his protective hand. They will experience immeasurable torment of mind and burning anguish of heart when they stand in the God's fiery presence and are bathed in the unquenchable fire of truth and love, all in the very presence of Jesus and the holy angels. And the memory of their suffering and the lesson of their self-destructive choices will never be forgotten throughout, the, throughout all eternity future. There will be no peace of mind, day or night, for those who prefer the methods of the beast and model after him, nor anyone who chooses to mark themselves as followers of the beast. This requires patient endurance and part of the healed, those who live God's methods of love and remain true to Jesus. Sunday's lesson. We're going to skip. We're going to go to Monday's lesson. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living, active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible commentary on this idea of living and active says that living, it takes a living and active force to create in man a new heart and a re- renew its spirit within him. The word of God is living and imparts life. Thus it was the work of creation and thus it is the work of recreation of man. I agree with this completely. 
It takes a, a power outside ourselves to heal and restore us and put real life in our hearts. We can't do that. No amount of willpower, no amount of human intelligence, no amount of fighting on our own can actually give us life. What do you think it means penetrates the dividing of soul and spirit? And uh, the Greek, suke and pneuma. Suke, soul, pneuma, spirit. Some suggest, some commentators, I read some commentaries on this, believe that refers to suke, life, and pneuma, breath. It, it divides life and breath. I actually take a different view. Not that that's wrong, but it may be an additional view. That it refers to soul. Soul refers to our individuality, our unique individual self, our personhood, our individual wants, our longings, our desires. Where our spirit refers to the higher faculties of reason and conscience where the Holy Spirit works, our good judgment. And it divides the two. This word brings conviction that there's something wrong with our human carnal desires. And it enlightens us with a better way and gives us a desire for a better way. Is this like dying to self, dying to the evil desires that are in our hearts? Yeah, it says in James chapter 1 that no one should say God tempts because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted and we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. And so we have these desires, not God-placed. Adam did not have those in Eden. Those are placed there because of the deviation from God's design, that we don't operate. We have fear, and, and, and the root to this, fear and selfishness. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid, because they were naked. Afraid. Fear lead, turns us inward, turns us to self-protective mechanisms, turns us to the survive, kill or be killed motive. Whereas love casts out fear, and these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death, Revelation twelve eleven. There's a different motive. Think it meaning. They don't love their life so much as to shrink from death. That fear, that desire, that drive to survive that causes us in every court of the human land that you can kill somebody who's threatening you because of self-defense. It's legal. It's proper. But Revelation describes the people who won't do that. They don't love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not interested in killing other people. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. Is that we know what love is? Christ gave his life for us and we'll give our lives. For our brother, this is not natural to the human heart. This is this this normal human desire. God wants to extinguish from us and put back the desire that we really love people more than we love ourselves. Not that we um, become doormats and let people walk over us, because that's not loving the other person. I want to jump down a little bit. This is my paraphrase from that text. For the word of God is living and active revelation of the truth about God, his methods and principles, the real basis of life in the universe. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates the deepest recesses of the mind and, and separates the thoughts and feelings, the habits and motives. It diagnoses the true intentions, attitudes, and principles of the heart. Well, this is the word. What is the word that penetrates so deeply? If you look in the context, it's very, a lot of people say the word is the entire scripture. Of course it is, rightly understood. But the context there, if you look a little higher in the chapter 4 of Hebrews, Paul starts this conversation where he says the word is active and living. And he describes what he's focusing on here. Do you know what he says in Hebrews 4, 2, just a few verses before? For we have heard the good news, just or the gospel, depending on your translation, the gospel, just as they did. They heard the message, but it did them no good because they heard it when they heard it, they did not accept it with faith. 
He's primarily saying the word that divides, the word that separates, the word that brings conviction is the truth about God's character of love and his methods. The gospel, the eternal gospel is the message that does this. And it must be experienced in the heart. It's the same message that the three angels are to present, that a group of people on earth are to arise at the last time and take to the world. I was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist and brought up in a system in which, in where I was raised, we had many rules. And we were raised with a God that was to be feared for justice required. He punished disobedience. And I was taught the law um, and that other non-SDA Christians were in trouble with God because they didn't keep the law, because they didn't keep the Sabbath. Am, am I the only one who was taught this? <laughs> Thus I was instilled with a sense of spiritual superiority because we were right. We were the remnant the only true ones to God. The faithful, the commandment keepers. Have you heard this? So when I was young, I had a great sense of spiritual confidence, but it was really spiritual arrogance. Spiritual arrogance. We're going to come to that in a minute. Pride. And I looked down on other Christians as being in the dark. In fact, I know our organization at times has had maps. We've had dark counties. There's not an Adventist church in that county. It's dark. Am I wrong about that? No. So I was instilled with this idea they were to be pitied. They don't have the light. Then I discovered while many of the facts I had been taught were correct, they had all been presented and coded in distortions about God and particularly his methods. God was presented as arbitrary and the Sabbath was taught to me. Maybe it wasn't taught to you this way. It was taught to me as an arbitrary test of obedience. There's no reason for it. God just said do it, and if you don't, it's a test to see who's going to be on his side and who's not, and if you don't, he'll punish you. I don't know if you know, one of the founders of our church said that Satan misrepresented God and attributed him all the characteristics of the evil one, severe, unforgiving, and arbitrary. That's, I believe, Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. So I came to realize, when I came to realize the truth about God's law, it's an expression of his character of love. He's the builder, the designer. He built his universe to operate. I came to no longer fear him and love him and adore him and want to be like him. And another problem arose for me. And some of you may have picked up over on the years. I've spent a lot of time praying about this because my heart's been heavy. And it's probably affected the way I presented things sometimes. But I came to have some anger and resentment at the organization which misrepresented God to me. How could this church hold these distortions, I felt? In my frustration, I became embarrassed to be identified as a Seventh-day Adventist. When people would ask me, are you an Adventist? I'd go, I don't want to say that because I don't want people to think I'm like that. This bunch of legalists who think that... And I remember a friend in the church had a heart attack. And he was revived three times. He survived, but he told me every time that they shocked his heart, he was in and out. He knew where he was. He knew what was going on. And he said he had one thought in his mind. I hope there isn't some sin I forgot to confess that will keep me out of heaven. Yeah. I thought, how horrible. That's the God you believe in. How horrible. I don't want to be identified like that. As a legalist, in other words. It was the way, again, maybe this is not your experience. This was my experience. Then this week it hit me, as I've been praying about this, that Jesus belonged to a religious system that was corrupt, 
dominated by people who are legalistic, who cherished and imposed the law construct, who horribly misrepresented God. Yet he came not only to reveal the truth about God, but in Jesus we see what true Judaism was supposed to look like. What the religious leaders lived out was false Judaism. Jesus said, I... Jesus did not say, I am leaving Judaism. Rather, he revealed the reality of what that system was supposed to teach all along. So I made a little comparison between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus was a Jew. The Pharisees were a Jew. Jesus kept the Sabbath. They kept the Sabbath. He believed in the Creator God. They believed in the Creator God. He prayed. They prayed. He honored the sanctuary. They honored the sanctuary. He ate the right food. They ate the right food. He dressed right. They dressed right. He kept the feast. They kept the feast. He believed the Scripture. They believed the Scripture. What was the difference? What was the difference? Jesus lived the law of love. They lived an imposed law construct. He would heal on the Sabbath. They said, no, you cannot heal. You're breaking the rules. The rules won't allow for that. We must keep the rules. Imposed law. They wanted to stone the woman caught in the dirt. She broke the rules. The rules say we must stone her. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and live a better life. I want to heal you. I want you to change in heart. I want you to be a better person. And so Paul wrote, A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, the interchange by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Romans 2, 28 and 29. The law of love written on the heart. Hebrews eight ten. Then I considered my situation today and contrasted what I call true Adventism from false Adventism, or true Christianity from false Christianity. And I'm not attacking the church. Not at all. I'm attacking a false manifestation of what Christianity is supposed to be. Not the true church. True Adventists keep the Sabbath, so do the false. True believe in the Creator God, so do the false. True pray, so do the false. True honor sanctuary, so do the false. True eat right, so do the false. True observe the communion, so do the false. True are baptized, so are the false. True believe the scripture, so are the false. True dress right, so are the false. What's the difference? I'm going to tell you it comes down to how you understand God's law. Do you live the law of love? Have you had your heart renewed? Or do you believe in an imposed, arbitrary God who must inflict punishment from on high? Then I came across a quote from one of the founders. Manuscript release. Or second mind character personality, page 559. A deep and thorough... Remember, our lesson today is about reform and revival, our whole quarter. Listen to the word. A deep and thorough work of reform, reform, reformation, is needed in the Seventh-day Adventist church. The world, is not to be, the world is not to be allowed to corrupt the principles of God's commandment-keeping people. Believers are to exert an influence that bears witness to the power of heavenly principles. Those who unite with the church must give evidence of a change of principle. Unless this is done, unless the line of demarcation between the church and the world is carefully preserved, assimilation to the world will be the result. Our message to the church and to our institutions is, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The attributes of Christ's character are to be cherished, and these are to become a power in the lives of God's people. So what does it mean, heavenly principles? What's the difference between the principles of heaven and the principles of the world. Well, I'll give you some more quotes. Great Controversy 493. The law of love being the foundation of God's government, the happiness of all created beings depend upon their perfect accord with its great principles. 
of righteousness, heavenly principles, law of love. Here's another one. What's the abbreviation RC stand for? Reflecting Christ. RC, page 46. The law of God, from its very nature, is unchangeable. It is a revelation of the will and character of its author. God is love and his law is love. Its two great principles are love to God and love to man. Such a law, being an expression of the mind and will of God, must be as enduring as its author. So, Great Controversy 493, our only definition of sin is that given in the word of God. It is the transgression of the law. It is outworking of a principle at war with the great law of love. Notice there's antagonistic principles involved, motives, design protocols, if you want to call it that. This, when we talk about principles, we're talking about like laws of gravity, laws of love. I mean, these, these things, design protocols, desire of ages, this hopefully help bring us together. At the cross of Calvary, love and selfishness stood face to face. What are the principles? What are the principles? Love, self-sacrificial love, great love, survival of the fittest, selfishness, me first. These are the principles. Now, when it comes to the principles of the world, governments of the world, how do you govern people who run on selfishness? What system governs people? Coercion, Coercion, force, impose law. This This is the kingdom of the world. Let me give you a quote. Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Satan's presentation is God. Government is an imposed law structure that he must inflict punishment. Those who teach and impose law are forwarding Satan's arguments. We are talking about revival and reformation this quarter. And the quote I read said that the church needs to reform to have the principles of heaven, not the principles of the world. How do human governments govern? The worldly systems operate? Now, I didn't bring the quotes, but I have some quotes if you, if you want them. The first church historian, Asubius, I think it was around 290 to 340, wrote in his first church history, that the government of heaven was basically, I can't remember the exact words, but the idea is, was modeled after Constantine's Roman government. Wow. <laughs> I've got the quote if somebody would like it. And then, of course, other quotes later, where Constantine began to use the state power to impose punishments on those who were not Christian, um, and the bishops of Rome did not oppose him. Why didn't they oppose him? Why didn't they say, as Paul said, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Let's have freedom of conscience. We don't want the state to punish people because the bishops have already accepted God. God operates this way. That's how he works. We have to punish disobedience. True Adventism then, and as in all true Christianity, is being like Jesus, living the law of love, the principle of heaven. Whereas false Adventism, as in all false Christianity, is living the principles of the world, teaching an imposed law system. I'm going to tell you, guys, I want Christ to come. I really, really do. And I really believe if the gospel of the kingdom, of God's true nature and character is seen, that he would come. 
but it's obstructed by this other view. It keeps people afraid of God and distrusting him. They don't live a life of, of peace because they don't have that law written on their heart. Yes, Wendell. When, when Christ was talking to the woman at the well, in spite of being part of this, this church structure that was so failed and, and so, etc., he said, righteousness comes from the, and salvation comes from the Jews. And so he, even though it was broken, it's used by God as a vehicle to, to speak to who he is. And our broken church can do the same thing if we revive. Um, and he also said, yeah, and, and he said salva- the context, meaning what? He's salvation and he's coming. That's what he was meaning. Because he also said to her, the day is going to come where you don't want worship either in Jerusalem or on this mountain. Either way. Because he wants people to worship in spirit and truth. He wants people with right hearts. That's what he wants. And it won't matter where you are physically if your heart is right with God. So he's also said that too. In that same conversation. But I think you're right. And I think that the system, again, I'm not against any system. I'm against a misrepresentation of God that's infected the system. If I had a patient with, a, with, a, with an infection and they were in the ICU, I wouldn't be against my patient. I want to, to purge the infection from the patient. And Christianity needs a reform. This is what we're talking about, re- re- revival and reform. We need to have the, the love of God, the truth about his character, revitalize us to have his law of love written on the heart and mind, have the spirit dwell within, to represent him in his right nature and character and stop this other view, which dominates, it really dominates. And I, and I don't mean stop it by, and hopefully you understand what I mean, but stop, stop by converting people. I don't mean stop it by using, like, using authority to, to tell people they can't. No, I, I, give them the freedom to present their view. It's, I'm, I'm good with that. Let, present their view. Let people decide. That's okay. But we have a work to do. Any thoughts about this today? I really prayed a lot about whether I should share this today or not because it was pretty intense. Yeah. I was thinking when you read the first quote, that um, you talking about worldliness or, or the world, and we've changed our understanding of that. We think of behaviors. We think of, of you know, top sins of the world as jewelry. Yeah, and and so it's it, we don't get to the heart of the matter when we think of principles of worldliness and what they do. Thank you so much. Oh, that, that, that's so helpful. I didn't even really register on that this week, and I appreciate you saying it. She said that when we focus on worldliness in the church, we focus on whether you watch TV, what foods you eat, what clothes you wear, whether you, you know, have a Facebook account or not. Um, you know, basically the things that the world does. We don't focus on the actual motives, principles of how the world, the world is, is constructed to operate. The selfish principle of coercive pressure and imposed punishments. We don't focus on that. But that is the real core issue. Do we represent God as Jesus revealed him to be? Or do we represent him as a Roman dictator in heaven with more power than any human dictator? Yes, Lisa. I listened to someone who's an expert on uh, the old Bible languages, and he was telling us that righteousness can be interpreted as loving kindness. So if you put loving kindness in place of righteousness in the Bible, then you God's righteousness, in other words, is loving kindness. And, and see, I, have no, I, I can see several threads connecting on that. Righteousness, being right, being set right, being just, 
being doing what's right, and which all comes back to, do you see God as the builder designer, where he constructed everything to operate in harmony with his law of love, then the right way to live is in harmony with loving kindness or the law of love, because that's how it was built to right, and that's the just and right thing to do. So all can connect back. But if you have the other view, see, then something else comes in mind. And righteousness and justice aren't really the same anymore. Justice gets humanized, and we, we look like George Bush, that, that uh, you know, whether we bring you know, justice to our enemies or enemies to justice, justice will be served. And we all know what that means. It means we're going to inflict a very amount of big bad pain on them. And many of you, God, just like that. Hey, I'm gonna, uh, he's coming back, and he's bringing his, uh, his sword. But you know what sword he brings? I've heard sermons on this. He, he does bring a sword. He does. He absolutely does. And Revelation says it comes out of where? His mouth. And we just read here about the sword is, is, is sharper and is a two-edged sword, cutting bone. It's the word of truth. This is the sword. The truth convicts. The truth determines. And we, our eternal destiny is determined by the reality of our condition. We have either been restored into righteousness through the working of the Spirit, cleansing and healing us, or we have been sealed into rebellion against God and our hearts hate him. And it's the truth that separates. But that's not what's presented. It's presented as him coming back with a weapon that he uses to wield against us. Can you trust a God like that? Could you trust your spouse if you believe your spouse said, you know, I'm going to marry you because I want you to love me and I love you, but the day I think you don't love me, the day you decide not to love me, I will walk in, pour gasoline on you, and light you on fire. But I love you. How many Christians have this view? God loves you, but if you don't, he will burn you. He will. Call it justice. This, this is out of harmony with the law of, of liberty. The law of liberty is testable. It's reproducible. It's God's design. Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. As soon as you threaten and take freedom away, and I could give you quote after quote after quote from one of the founders of our church who says, coercive threat and pressure is found only in Satan's government. There's no part in God's government where he coerces and threatens. How do we get that? Because we have a wrong view of God's law. And I'm challenging each of you to embrace the, the truth about God's character of love, his methods, the design protocol. See him as the builder, the constructor. Live in harmony and share this message with people. It's freeing. I'm going to tell you with the new book that just came out two, two months ago, we are getting emails from all over the world already from people. If you go on Amazon, just read some of the comments on Amazon. People, I don't know who they are, but they're saying, one lady said this week, I never really thought God was against me. But after reading this book, I saw something bigger, something amazing, something grand. You saw God's character of love in nature around. It's transformational. Lives are being changed with this, with this message. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our designer, our creator. And while we have, have, have been born out of harmony with your design, born in sin, conceived in iniquity, as David said, that you, you love us and you're longing to restore us back into onement with you, to unity with you, to transform, regenerate, rebuild, recreate, write the law in our mar- hearts and minds. Give us a, a heart of flesh and remove the stony heart. All the metaphors are telling us the same, that you want to heal, regenerate, and recreate us to be like you. We open our hearts because you have won us to trust. We ask the Spirit will take all that you've achieved on our behalf and reproduce it in us so it's no longer high that live, that we become partakers of your divine nature, loving God and loving others more than self living and operating on the grand principles of heaven. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.